2 Samuel chapter 18, please. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to look at all 33 verses tonight. Follow along there with me in your Bibles uh, or on the screens as we look at God's Word together. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, uh, then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abisha, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. Uh, The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abisha and Ittai to deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David... He was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. I guess you could say his mule got loose. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry. I just, that popped in my head at the wrong time. You ever heard that term before? I've been in preaching services before where a lot of people are shouting an amen, and Somebody say, my mule got loose. You ever heard that before? Okay, maybe that's just me. I don't know. All right. Anyway, Absalom's mule got loose. Verse 10, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver in a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it's called Absalom's monument to this day. 
Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall not carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man, and he comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hands against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rised up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. But it has been clear in our studies that Absalom, the son of King David, is attempting to destroy his father and take over his kingdom. It's a tra tragic and, and difficult scene to see, but one that was made clear to David by the prophet Nathan when he was confronted back in 2 Samuel chapter 12. After David's sin, the revelation of what he had done was no longer hidden. And Nathan came to him and said in 2 Samuel 12, 10, The sword will never depart from your house. And of course that prophecy was in direct connection to the sin that David had committed. So we come now and we see that that prophecy is playing out to the fullest. Absalom has rebelled against his father and he's led the majority of Israel to reject David as God's anointed king. And now he's, he's in Jerusalem leading a large contingency of soldiers to chase down David and his servants for the sole purpose 
of taking their lives. What we have before us is a civil war, a civil war in Israel. Now, we must interpret everything that takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 18 in light of what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 17, specifically verse 14 of chapter 17. So everything that transpires, everything that we just read, everything that we will unfold together this evening, it has to be understood by what was said in 2 Samuel 17, 14. And here's what it says. You can see it there in your Bibles. The Lord ordained the defeat of the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is the sovereign will of God that harm be brought upon Absalom. So everything that we are reading now, everything that is being unfolded before us goes right back to the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, the decreed will of God, that it is his purpose to harm Absalom. In other words, just as God has sovereignly ordained what would be the deliverance of David, he has likewise sovereignly ordained the death of Absalom. And it's important that we understand that as we walk through it together. Well, just a few points of outline to help us understand the structure. Here's the first one. We see, first of all, the time David needed. The time David needed. This is in verses 1 through 4. And in these first four verses, what we find here is that David is preparing for battle which was a direct result of Hushai, David's spy, if you remember, his, his double agent. He's, he's on a mission back in Jerusalem to report everything that he has seen, everything that he hears back to David's camp. But even perhaps to Hushai's surprise, he's become more than just the simple eyes and ears of David. He's actually won over the trust of Absalom himself. And it was to Hushai that Absalom went for a second opinion regarding the counsel of Ahithophel to attack David immediately. Hushai took advantage of the opportunity that was given to him to speak into the scenario. And as you remember last week as we studied, he gave Absalom terrible military advice. But that was purposeful. All for the purpose of helping David have the time he needed to prepare for whatever attack Ahithophel was proposing. And as a result of 2 Samuel 17 and verse 14, as a result of God's ordained purposes, Absalom took Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's, which again was so much weaker than Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel's advice was so much better. It was great military strategy, but that was not the plan of God. And this is why Absalom, in a very weird way to us who are studying it, takes Hushai's advice. So thanks to the success of this good double agent, this good spy, the success of Hushai, David and his camp were given the time that they needed to rest, recuperate, and prepare for whatever battle lie ahead. 
And that's what we read in verses 1 through 4. David has the time that he needs. He's preparing himself and he's preparing the men for the battle that is fixing to take place. Now when we look at these first four verses, and I'm not going to go back and read them again, but we do understand here once again that David was a leader of leaders. He was a tremendous administrator with exceptional military skills. He takes that group of men and he begins to to organize them. One third were placed under the command of Joab. Another third was placed under the command of Abishai. And the last third was placed under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And this army, as told here, numbered in the hundreds and in the thousands. They were rested at this point nourished by the provisions of food and blessings that had been brought to him. They were equipped. They were, they were ready for battle. Had, had Absalom took Ahithophel's advice, that would have never taken place. But because of God's ordained purposes, Hushai's advice was received. And it gave David and his men all the time that they needed to get ready. You see, the work that Hushai had dangerously put himself in the middle of had worked. God protected him, and God protected David. And we see that they had all the time they needed to prepare for battle. That's the time David needed. That's verses 1 through 4. Then we come to verse 5, and it's just one verse I want to make this point to you. And that is, secondly, the request David made. So we see, first of all, the time David needed. Secondly, we see the request that David made. He's organized the army. He has placed them under the commands of three leaders, and he's getting ready to employ them to battle. But right before he does, he makes one request. Verse 5. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai to do this. Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. Please deal gently with my son. Don't kill my son. He's my son. When you find him, when you come across him, Please deal gently with him. Now what we have unfolding before us is love and justice. Absalom was a traitor. And by the means of justice, Absalom deserved to die. That's what he deserved. He deserved justice. He was also David's son. And David loved him. It was from that heart of love that this request to deal gently with Absalom was made. And so what we have here is a conflict of emotion whereby David's love and David's desire to treat his son gently is on a collision course with God's ordained purpose to harm Absalom and carry out justice on his life. So let's step back for a minute. Because what David ultimately desires is a decisive victory against those who have rebelled against his throne. There is no question about that. He wants victory. If that was not the case, he would not be organizing his men for such a battle. 
but he wants that victory without any harm done to his son. Even after all that Absalom has done to him, love and justice are now intermingled into an emotional battle in David's heart. I like what Derek Thomas noted by way of observation in this verse. Derek said, It appears David realizes that he is partly to blame for Absalom's behavior. And I think that's a good observation because as parents, this is a familiar emotion, isn't it? We see in our children perhaps the repercussions of our own mistakes. Perhaps their, their behaviors or certain circumstances that they find themselves in. And I know I still have young children. I've not reached the level of having adult children yet. But from what I have observed and been told is that the older children get, the more these feelings come about in the life of parents. That there's no question that in some ways a child's situation, behavior, or choices, there's part blame on the faults of parents. Well, that's not in totality, obviously, but David seems to, as Derek points out here, and again, I concur with it, he seems to express such love and gentleness for his son because he realizes that the whole behavior, the whole situation, it was, it was partly he to blame for it. Now, at the end of this, we're going to find David deeply grieving, as we read a moment ago in verse 33. But we must connect it back to the beginning of the chapter here in verse 5 to see that his grief is connected to his love. He grieves so badly because he loved so much. As Alistair Begg points out, the nature of his grief was grounded in the extent of his love. He's grieving at the end over the death of his son because he loved his son so much. So we find the time David needed, verses 1 through 4, the request David made, verse 5. Please, whatever you do, deal gently with my son. I know justice must be carried out, but I love him. Please deal gently with him. Write write down number three. This is verses 6 through 18. The victory David won. The victory David won. Now, the actual battle is not given a long description in the story. In fact, only verses 6, 7, and 8 are dedicated to it. Here's what happened. Verse 6 tells us that the battle took place in a forest, the forest of Ephraim. Verse 7 tells us that 20,000 men in the army of Israel were defeated by David's army. Now, the text is not explicitly clear on this. All we find out is that David's army was in the hundreds of thousands, but yet he did, in the previous verses, have some of those men say that, look, we don't need you to go because one of you is worth 10,000 of us, vice versa. So it could have been that that analogy was actually descriptive of how many men were in David's army. We're not sure, but if that was the case, look at this, David has 10,000 men, Uh, Israel has 20,000 men, Uh, so David's men defeat the enemy with less than half of what they have coming against them. 
So 20,000 men, this is, a, this is a heavy loss. And then verse 8 tells us that the forest devoured more people than the sword did. Now that phrase has been of interest to me this week as I've studied this. Look at it again there in your Bibles, verse 8. It says, the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. That's verse 6. Verse 7, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. John Woodhouse says the forest was probably a thickly wooded region of rough terrain with ravines and marshes and cliffs and so on. And so what the text seems to indicate here is that David's army strategically took the army of Israel into an unfamiliar territory. And the unfamiliarity of this treacherous terrain in the forest resulted in more people dying by accident than those who actually died by combat. Let let it just be stated again. God is sovereign over all things, even nature itself. Even nature itself. For God uses the forest, however that unfolded, to kill the majority of David's enemies. Now, that is all that we are given, verses 6, 7, and 8, about the battle itself, except for the scene involving Absalom beginning in verse 9 down through verse 18. We can see it in verse 9. In fact, look at it there in verse 9. Absalom happened to meet the servant of David. He was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak. He was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. So, in direct correlation to what was just said about the forest, Absalom here seems to get caught up by the unfamiliar terrain himself. He's riding on his mule, and I picture this in my mind as Absalom riding at a quick pace, by the way. He's going quickly. Maybe it's foggy. Maybe it's dark. Whatever the case is, is, they're in unfamiliar territory. He's not seeing what's in front of him. Maybe he even looked back because someone was chasing him. We don't know the exact scenario. All we know that he's riding on this mule... When all of a sudden he runs into a tree whereby his head, we've heard people say that it was hair, remember it was his hair that he thought so much of and so perhaps it was his hair that took him out. But the text actually doesn't say anything about the hair. The hair may have been involved, but it was actually the head. The head gets stuck in the branches while his mule keeps going, which subsequently leaves him suspended in the air without any ability to dislodge himself. So he's just dangling there. And he's dangling there helpless, powerless. Some have even commented that the impact itself could have been so horrendous that he might even be unconscious at this point. We know that he's still alive. The text tells us that. But, but in my mind, and I, I tend to think that is true, that here he is. He's not paying attention. He couldn't see. The forest is already a mess. He runs into a tree. His head is caught, stuck. Mule keeps going. He's dangling there, unconscious perhaps. So an unmanned name comes to Joab and reports. He says it just like this, that he saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Now, Joab wasn't happy with the simplicity of the report. He would much 
have heard, much rather heard, that this man had killed Absalom after he saw him. In other words, what he wanted to hear was, hey, I saw Absalom hanging an oak tree, and I killed him while I had the opportunity. Absalom's dead. But he didn't say that at all. All he said was, I saw Absalom. Joab says, what do you mean you saw Absalom? Why didn't you kill Absalom? I don't care that you saw him. I want you to kill him. So they get into this argument. And the man defends himself by saying that I didn't kill him because I heard what the king told you. The king told you not to harm his son. So I'm not going to harm his son because that's the king's orders. Now, Joab's frustrated by the interaction, so he chose to take matters in his own hands. Look at verse 14. He took three javelins in his hand. He thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Why three? I don't know. Perhaps one for himself, one for Abishai, one for Ittai. I don't know. It's all conjecture. But he takes three. He puts it into the heart of Absalom. Verse 15 says, then ten young men, uh, Joab's armor bearers, they surrounded Absalom, struck him, killed him. They They make sure he's dead at this point. And then he was quickly buried, but not in the way that he had hoped he would one day be buried. Because we have this little bracket put in here beginning in verse 18. And the bracket tells us that previous to this whole war, previous to this whole episode, Absalom had built a monument in the Kidron Valley. And he builds a monument in honor of himself. Because at this point, it seems to be that all of his sons are dead also. So he, so he has no way to carry on his name. So he wants to make a name for himself. He, he builds his own memorial, his own statue, his, his own uh, monument. Perhaps maybe he wanted to be buried there. But at the very least, it's clear that he wanted the people to remember him. And that has been par for the course when it comes to Absalom's character, isn't it? He wanted so badly to make a name for himself. He wanted people to visit the Kidron Valley one day, see that monument dedicated to his memory, and think to themselves, man, what a great king. But that's not what happened. He was buried like someone who had been cursed. He was buried like a foolish sinner who was an enemy of God and his people. They threw him into a pit. They covered him up with a pile of stones, and then they just left him there to rot. But the monument's already been built. But now, when the people go to the monument and see it and show their children, they're not going to say, oh, what a great king. No, 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 no. They'll stop and think, what a foolish rebel. All this happens fast, doesn't it? And I think that's what stands out to me the most. This all happens fast, fast. There's not much mentioned about the battle. And the next thing you know it, we look up and he's hanging from the tree, unconscious, no dialogue, no conversation. This this servant, this unnamed man doesn't have a conversation with him. Joab doesn't have a conversation with him. That there's no appeal while he's hanging in the tree, helpless and powerless, to repent of his sins and come back home to David. And all this problem will go away. Nothing. It just happens. Just like that. One moment he is riding in battle on a mule. And the next moment he's hanging unconscious moments from death without any help for his soul 
Now, when I read that this week, I wrote this down in my notes. God is under no obligation to give you an opportunity for a deathbed repentance. Perhaps young people are tempted by this more than anyone. I got my whole life ahead of me. I'm going to go where I want to go. I want to do whatever I want to do. I understand the message, Pastor. I understand what my parents have been telling me. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to go here. And and, and if if I'm lying up in a hospital bed one day, fixing to go out, then, then that's when I'll get right with God. Absalom was never given that opportunity. It happened so quickly. In a moment, one day, riding on a mule. The next second, hanging lifeless in a tree. How many tragedies, accidents, deaths have we seen take place around us without an opportunity to get right with God? You say, well, that's not fair. No, no, no. Let me tell you what's fair. That God himself said today is the day of salvation. Now is the moment to turn to him. He is giving you that opportunity today. He is extending that invitation to you tonight. And he is under no obligation whatsoever to provide you an opportunity to turn to him when you are moments from death. It's something to think about. Because that's surely how it ends with Absalom. Well, number four, the news David received. The news David received, 19 verse 32. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now because my time is up. We could spend a lot of time on these verses, but I'm choosing not to, okay? I'm choosing not to. I don't want you to look at this and say, well, pastor must not have studied it this week. No, no, no. I'm choosing not to, okay? Everybody got that? He wasn't out fishing. He's choosing not to. He's choosing not to. You study this for yourself, but let me give you a little summary, okay? The summary is this. After a dialogue between Joab and and, and two messengers, a foot race ensues to bring David the news from battle. It was Ahimez, the son of Zadok, who was the first messenger. And when he comes to David, he brings a general message about victory. No specifics. We don't know if he's telling a lie here about not knowing about Absalom's death or or whether he truly did not know. All, All we know at this point is that he runs. He wanted so badly to bring good news to David. He gets there and he just says, hey, good news we won. We can go back to Jerusalem. Of course, David asked about his son. Ahimez skirts the issue. It was the second messenger, the Cushite, who was actually a foreigner but was yet loyal to David. It is he in these moments who brings David specific news. Specifically, not only that they had won, but in the process his son Absalom had died. Look at it, verse 32. David asked him, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Verse 32, the Cushite says, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. In other words, he's dead. He received justice. He received justice. All right, this is the news that David gets. I think part of the reason why, and you can study it for yourself in verses 19 32, that there's a little argument about Joab wanting to send Ahimez versus the Cushite is because you don't know how David's going to respond to that kind of news. Ahimez is a good man. And we don't want Ahimez to face the repercussions of David finding out that his son had been killed. So let's send the Cushite, for whatever reason, 
Let's put him in that position. Okay, that's, again, you look at it for yourself. But here we are, not knowing how David's going to respond until verse 33 tells us. And here's where we conclude. Number five, the grief David experienced. The grief David experienced, verse 33. Upon hearing the news, the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Oh, would I have died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's moving, isn't it? We picture him broken, grieving, barely able to get it out, but yet moaning and wailing together. Oh, my son, why? You see, the kingdom's now safe. But the king is overwhelmingly sad. Verse 33 tells us that he goes up to this chamber, a private location, all by himself, where all he can do is moan, all he can do is cry and weep over his son. David loved Absalom. He loved him. Regardless of everything that we've seen, he loved him. I mean, this is his own son, his flesh and blood. And to David, it did not matter what he had done in his rebellion. This was his son. He loved him. We ought to likewise feel the same. It doesn't matter what our children do in their rebellion. They're our children. We love them. And the grief that overwhelms him of all of this is not only rooted in love for his son, but watch this. I believe this grief is rooted in regret of the things that David did that led to this. Because he knows. Because of his sin. The sword was never going to depart from his home. So in these moments, maybe he's thinking again, oh, had I not acted upon my lust with Bathsheba? Had I not conspired to kill Uriah? Oh, had I dealt with Amnon appropriately and not pitted my own son against me? Oh, would I had not kept him away from the kingdom so long. Oh, when I brought him back to Jerusalem, would I have embraced him and loved him and forgiven him instead of keeping him at such a distance for so long in our relationship. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the moment a person like that is gone in our life, all of those issues descend back upon us in this overwhelming state of grief. Because from what we can tell, there's no, oh, my son, my son, Absalom, until he's gone. I was just talking with someone this week who was experiencing some loss in their family. When I asked about some particular family members, they said to me, well, you know, they're dealing with a lot of guilt right now. 
that they didn't pay more attention, that they didn't make some things right with them, that they didn't come around more, that they would have responded differently while together in the home. I think it's natural, isn't it? You see, David loved his son, and David knew that justice had to be carried out even though he loved him so much and desired that he be dealt gently with. But I think here David is also grieving the fact that he was unable to save Absalom. I think all of us get this. David is grieving the fact that he was unable to save Absalom from neither his rebellious ways nor the consequences of his rebellion. I want to ask you, without answering publicly, does that type of grief resonate with any parent tonight? The grief that says, I can't save him. I can't save her from her rebellious ways. I can't save him from the consequences being poured out upon his life. Now, I'm not even sure David fully understands what he says here, but it needs to be pointed out because this is the point here. Look at what he says in verse 33. This is how I believe he was thinking about this. Would I had died instead of you. He's so overwhelmed with grief. He loved him. He's regretting the things that he did that potentially led to this. And he's grieving the fact that he couldn't even save his own son. All these other people were there. They were loyal to him. They were faithful to him. They loved him. But he couldn't save his son. And he couldn't save his son from the consequences of his rebellion. Oh, Absalom, my son, I wish, I wish I would have died instead of you. I wish I could have saved you. David loved David suffered loss, David wept, and David wished he could have saved his son by dying in his place. It tells us something remarkable about the kingdom of God, doesn't it? It tells us something remarkable that the kingdom of God has that the kingdom of David couldn't fulfill. That what King David could not do, King Jesus did. What King David could not do, die in the place of the rebellious, King Jesus did while we were still weak, Romans 5. Christ died for the ungodly. And I want you to know, mom and dad, I want you to know, There is hope for every Absalom in this world if they simply come to Jesus in genuine repentance. Because there is a king who did die in their place. But they must come to him. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the news of justice. And it is the news of love. But in God's kingdom, unlike David's kingdom... The Lord's justice is satisfied by the very one who loved us, God himself. In conclusion, I wrote down, number one, may Absalom's rebellious remind us 
that we reap what we sow. May we all be reminded of that tonight. That when we rebel against God, we will reap what we sow. No, it may not be you riding on a mule with your head hanging from a tree. But it will be something. It will be something. Whatsoever a man reaps, that's what he sows. I also wrote down, may we pray for the Absaloms in our life. That they also will receive the grace that God freely extends. And we must pray for what we cannot do for them. King Jesus has done. And only he can bring them home. Let's stand together for prayer.